Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 29, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And I've got to say, I'm loving being in our lovely air-conditioned studio this evening. Oh yeah, it's 34 degrees outside, but we're nice and cool. I don't want to frighten you too much, but Ravi and I both got our legs out today. <laughs> yeah, we got, we got the shorts on. We have. It's really nice at the moment, though. I mean, yeah, hot day of the year we're recording this show on. Yeah. And uh, nice if you're out and about listening to podcasts as well, like, you know, on your phone. A lot of people look like they've been doing that over the last week, judging by the iTunes chart. Yeah, yeah, we've been uh, number 10. Thank you so much, guys. Seriously, this is great. Number 10 in the tech charts. That's me. We're beating people like Wired. Yeah. UK and BBC <laughs> World Service. You know. So yeah, guys, we really appreciate all your downloads, and obviously, you know, if you enjoy the show, it's always nice if you share your links on, um, you know, your social media accounts and tell your friends and all that kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, we've had some listeners also sharing some photos with us of uh, their setups. We did mention this last week, didn't we? If you've got like, uh, we'd love to see your retro battle stations. I believe they're called. Yeah. And what we had then? Well, first we've had a guy who's uh, basically showing us how he listens and. This is done on a giant television using the tuned in app. And he says, you know, oh, I put it on when my wife's away. <laughs> and he's, uh, <laughs> this is uh, Tom Stone. And he's also showed us his setup, which mm. seems to be quite nice. He's got, you know, uh, a Dreamcast in there, a Snares N64. I love the way he listens when the wife's out as well. I mean, uh, we brought your girlfriend in the studio once. We, she barely stayed awake. <laughs> <laughs> she nearly fell asleep, yeah. I, my, my missus actually heard one of our episodes when I was driving back from the airport. I had it on the car, you know, egotistical. Yeah. Um, yeah, and she fell asleep as well, so yeah. <laughs> It's not girlfriend-friendly, this show, I don't think, yeah, is it? No, <laughs> but um, listener-friendly, because we've had another one, which is from Craig Pilkington, mm-hmm. and he's done a custom bar-top arcade, which looks oh, really nice. nice. It's got some kind of graphics on it that look very old-school gamery. Awesome. So it was nice to see people doing homebrew projects as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I've always tried to make one of these kind of old things. I've always had these great plans in my head, but nothing ever comes together. <laughs> what happened to your Raspberry Pi radio? Oh, my Raspberry, all the bits are still sitting there. <laughs> Seven months later. Yeah, and I'm just listening to FM radio on it. But uh, another guy as well is Will Williams, and he's got a beautiful setup. This is a... It's all an Amiga setup, so of course I'm going to be a bit biased. But Send the best of last. He's got LEDs in there. He's got, you know, framed Amiga format covers oh, and uh, a 2000 and some nice original CRT monitors. Speaking of which, I've actually been, my parents have been moving house, so I've been sorting out all my old stuff. Found, found some, like, loads of copies of Amiga format and CU and all that. I've actually got bad back from carrying them all down. Yeah, you're going to dump them at my house <laughs> after this. <laughs> well, it, it, I'd rather they went to you than to the tip. Yeah. I haven't got room for them, so it's, uh, it is nice. Well, actually, speaking of uh, Amigas as well, Gareth um, has actually dropped a tweet as well. He's got his uh, Amiga 600 restored. He found one that wasn't working. Now he's got a GoTech in there and a compact flashcard. So. Oh, bring him, bringing it back to life. And it's lovely weather for a bit of retro-brighting as well, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, just chuck that out in the sun. (laughs) So, yeah, thank you very much. We love your interaction, guys. So, you know, any pictures, anything you want to send us, check us out on Facebook or tweet us at The Retro Hour UK. Now, every week on the show, we have a special guest in the last half an hour. And we've got a really, really interesting one this week. Yeah, it's uh, Janelle Jackways. Now, her history in gaming pretty much goes from Dungeons & Dragons up to... um, Halo on the Xbox 360, doesn't it? Yeah, she was kind of at the very beginning. This is basically, we had Rebecca Berger on Mm -hmm. recently. This is Rebecca Berger's partner, Mm -hmm. and they're both massive, massive gaming people. She started at Coleco, you know, with the Coleco vision, and then went into Quake, (laughs) and, you know, up to Halo Wars. This is a, a really interesting interview, guys. And she was there right in the middle of the video game crash. 
you know, oh, right yeah. at the centre totally. of it all. So. And, you know, we don't feel that that bad over Europe, mm-hmm. but in America it's massive. It's just changed the face of things, really. Absolutely. So we'll get the inside story, Janelle, on the show in around 30 minutes from now. Now, uh, speaking of old school, um, this is quite an interesting story that just came out too late to be in last week's show. It was like the day we released it, it came out, didn't yeah. it? Um, we keep missing this Nintendo <laughs> news, don't we? Yeah, Nintendo, can you release your news on, like, what, like a Tuesday? Yes, please. please. Um, but Nintendo have gone old school and released the NES Mini. Yeah, and I think this is quite a smart move because they'll make a bit of money out of the old school stuff. But also, other people have been trying to release consoles like this. So, you know, there, there is a market for it. Well, what I think is really interesting about this, because obviously we've had, like, you know, there's been, like, the Sega ones that have come out over the years, but they're all kind of third-party companies who license their branding. But this is actually Nintendo, for the yeah. first time ever, actually kind of remaking one of their classic systems. Yeah, the ones that we saw before, like the small Genesis yeah. That they made at Argos and stuff. That was just a cheap, you know, third party thing. This is Nintendo making little nice NES controllers that are going to be, well, NES controllers that are going to be included and HDMI ports on it. Yeah, well, if you look at this thing, I mean, I've not seen one in person yet, but um, I've seen pictures of it. It looks like it's kind of a mini NES. It fits in the palm of your hand. Yeah. And there is, you know, a lot of people have been commenting, can you put cartridges in it? Because it looks like you've got the flap where you put the cartridge in, but you can't. I think, yeah, it's going to be limited to 30 games, isn't it? But, but looking through the list, though, I mean, they've got like, um, you know, the Super Mario Brothers 1, 2 and 3 are on here. Uh, Legend of Zelda, Zelda 2, uh, Adventure of Link, you've got Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., Galaga, you know, pretty much all the big um, NES games from back in the day. Even Bubble Bobble's on there as well. Yeah. Weren't you saying that it was uh, sold out on Amazon already? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not even sure it's been released yet. I think, you know, even on pre-order, it's pre order yeah. yeah, that's just shows the demand. They're really, really doing well, Nintendo, at the moment. God, can't believe it. It's, we're we're uh, slagging them off two weeks ago. Yeah, now. yeah. And now, <laughs> Pokemon, they've also announced, has taken 50% of the whole games market on mobile phones. It's also replaced pornography <laughs> as the highest searched thing online. Although I have seen some videos combining the two. <laughs> I don't want to know Strategically that. placed Pokemon. Oh, God. <laughs> I got sent the links. I didn't look it up, obviously. <laughs> I haven't been Googling Pokemon porn. Um, but everyone's getting into Pokemon all of a sudden. I mean, I mentioned to you when we did the show last week, it was a day before it came out in England, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And uh, my girlfriend, you know, because it didn't come out in Britain until, you know, a little bit after America. And I said, Samantha, I said, oh, I'll, put, I'll put it on your phone because she's got Android. I thought, you know, I'd, I'd sideload it for her. So I'm not interested in that. Yeah, they, I don't want that crap. Yeah, another <laughs> yeah, exact words. Yeah. And then um, they came out, all her uh, friends at work are all playing it. And she got, we got back and we went out for a bit of dinner on the Friday night. She goes, can you put that Pokemon thing on my phone? We're in the middle of dinner and she goes, I'll be back in a minute. Running off in the car park at the restaurant trying to find Pokemon. <laughs> ace, ace. Yeah, she's caught the bug. Everyone's hooked on it now though, isn't it? And we actually found one in the studio here. Yeah, yeah. Just on the desk, we put it on uh, Twitter. Yeah, so... uh, So. But Nintendo are doing really well, and I think, you know, the fact that they've kind of released this console, I mean, it's $49.99, and um, what's really cool, as you mentioned then, they've actually remade the the pads as well, the original, you know, D-pad controller, and they sell a second one for only eight quid. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a good price. That's the thing as well. You you know, you'd think from Nintendo, maybe it would be quite expensive, but Mm -hmm. actually, it's pretty cheap. And I've heard about these NES pads as well. I've read this. I think it's just a USB connector it uses, so you can actually use it on like the Wii U on the virtual console. Oh, cool. Or you may be able to plug it into your PC or yeah. other stuff and get drivers for it, you know. Absolutely. So I think, you know, what really excites me about this is, though, I kind of get the impression that it's kind of Nintendo dipping their toe in the water and being a bit like, you know, is there an interest in this? And maybe next we'll get, like, you know, a Super Nintendo, maybe, an, you know, an N64 yeah. version of this. So, Ooh. yeah. That'd a, be nice. I've got an original NES, but... 
I'm quite interested in getting one of these as well. Yeah, I think my TV is now going to have all of these little tiny computers <laughs> underneath <laughs> the little consoles. It's going to be uh, a bit of a mess, an even bigger mess. Well, it's got HDMI out as well, hasn't it? Which, uh, you know, I, I would like, um, you know, something to hook it up to an old school CRT, but, you know, it's just me, me being fussy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll pop a link in the show notes if you want to find out a bit more about the uh, the NES Mini at theretrohour.com. Now, our buddy Marvin, he's um, always, you know, finds some interesting stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, um, Marvin Drugsman is basically an insane Amiga collector that <laughs> just finds the most amazing connections with Amiga. I don't know how he does it, you know. He's an incredibly good guy at this, and he's found the British Army using Amiga 600s in the 90s. This is in the 90s to recreate sound for the Challenger 2 tanks on the simulator. So they used high-end, you know, silicon graphics machines for all the graphics, but the sound just on these little Paula chips on the Amiga 600s. How did he even get hold of this? Uh, well, his friend Martin Wieland talked to someone on Amibay and they were saying, I've got a beautiful condition Amiga 600. So he's going, oh, I want one of these because at the moment they're quite rare with the vampire card and, uh, the, you know, price is going up. And he goes, well, oh, I've got, I've got six extra stock ones. And it's like, stock? Oh, really nice condition. Why has he got these? And he told him this whole story of how they were used for the Challenger tank stuff. Now, what's happened is Marvin's got hold of this with him and they've managed to extract from the hard drives some of this old military software. <laughs> now, I don't know if this is going to be a, you know, a military secret or anything. I was going to say, I'm surprised it didn't wipe it. Yeah, it's crazy. Maybe they were military secrets. <laughs> but um, So what Marvin's done is the logical thing with these files, which is um, put them together and remix them into an army-based tune. <laughs> 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 kind of like the old cannon fodder. <laughs> well... Literally, while we're saying this, he's just messaged me um, a little clip of this song that they're making. So this is constructed out of these samples that used to be used in this tank simulator. For the British Army. Here you go. Action! Loading! Loading! Authority to fire. What do you think? I quite like it. I like the uh, angry army guys. <laughs> now, I'm just thinking, you remember that t- Tanks Furry game we were talking about? Oh. They need to remake it and put that on the beginning. Yeah, that would be the best intro. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, the, the simulator they were doing, though, um, with, these tanks were actually quite um, high-profile machines that they, they were simulating, weren't they? Yeah, and these Challenger 2 tanks were actually quite famous for the time because I don't know if you remember the Falklands War. Mm-hmm. They had uh, the iconic image of Margaret Thatcher on top of a tank, you know, defining as the Iron Lady. And that was the the Challenger 2 tank that they were actually simulating. Well, it says here as well, I mean, Marvin asked him a little bit more about the um, what they used. The guy was called Keith, who um, sold the machines to him. Yeah. And he mentions that it was controlled from the um, Silicon Graphics workstation by a serial link. And then the Amiga replaced stuff like, you know, the, the turret rotating machine gun sound effects and all that kind of thing as well. And uh, it was actually 1996 who were using this. So that was, you know, a good few years after the Amiga um, kind of finished. Wow. And uh, you think that military simulation technology would be so advanced, but they 
were using an obsolete machine. It's great. But as I said to Marvin, I mean, I've been talking to him on Facebook chat about this, and you know, there's actually a picture of uh, the room where they developed it in and all that. And I said that could only happen to the Amiga. Such a random story like that. Yeah, <laughs> you know totally. I mean? And and to have that British connection, yeah, you know, is 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 very odd. But uh, thanks for that news so much, guys. But whenever I see Marvin's stuff, I'm a bit like, you know, is Commodore still in business and secretly supplying him? He seems to get so many new. <laughs> Yeah. He had like a warehouse at one point full of them. A warehouse, he had lorries full of stuff. Yeah, he's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so if you ever need any Commodore or Amiga stuff, he's the guy to go to. Well, yeah, I, well, I've certainly bought some stuff off him before. It's yeah, great. He got, he got me Commodore 16 recently after all this Ooh, time. Nice. So if you need to hook it up, we'll uh, put you in touch. Now, speaking of Commodore, actually, have you heard of the Commodore 2? The Commodore 2? No. I'd only recently heard about this, actually. There was a video, I think it was the Computer History, History Museum did, um, you know, one of Jack Tramiel on the Commodore 64's 30th anniversary, just before he died. They got mm-hmm. together, Was was there and all that as well. Oh, yeah, I remember that one, yeah. And uh, a member of the audience stood up and he said, um, you know, I bought one of them Commodore 2 machines and they were really good to Jack Tramiel. He goes, why, why did you discontinue them so quickly? And what it was, it was actually a successor to the PET, released in late 82, and it was discontinued in early 84. So it was only on sale for maybe about 18 months. Okay. And uh, they are pretty nice machines. It had... It uh, looks really nice. I love the rounded. It's like a rounded kind of Amiga. <laughs> well, it kind of, it's what, what you imagine the future would look like if you lived in 1982. It's, it's kind of that, <laughs> yeah, that retro-futuristic kind of look. Yeah. Um, but the CPU's in there as well, so it had a 6509, an Intel 808-8, and a Z80 as well. So you're talking like, you know, triple CPU's you could put in this thing. Wow. But there's a guy who actually posted on the Lemon64 forum, and he said um, a, a guy that he knows was sorting out his office. And he came across a Commodore 2 B500 computer and gave it to him. And this guy was kind of looking around for software, couldn't find any. So he thought, well, I'll write my own game for it. So uh, 30 years after it originally came out, there is a new Commodore 2 game that's just been released. And it's called Space Chase. Wow. So this is like, it only lasted two years, really, the sales of this machine. Yeah. And there's a new game that's been coming out. So there mustn't be that many around. No, I think Actually. they are quite rare. I mean, I th- you know, the 64 was selling well, and I think, you know, they're basically like, Jack was obviously leaving around then, so they just discontinued it. They weren't making enough of it, and they thought, we'll sell 64s instead, more people want them. But looking at this game as well, there is actually a YouTube video, so you can watch it. And it's actually, a pr- you know, because the specs of this machine are, are pretty good, and it is quite a, a pacey two-player space shooter game. Yeah, you know, this a proper is, arcade title. Yeah, wow, this is really cool, actually. And uh, it's 25 years since the machine came out. So this game is 25 years late. Well, 35. It's 35, a, yeah. oh 1982 my God. it came out. So, oh God. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, it's always cool to see... Um, you it's know, older than me. <laughs> dude, yeah. Nice to see new software being developed for a machine that's uh, was so obscure and you don't really read about that much. Because when I saw that, I was like, what, what's a Commodore 2 again? I looked at it and I thought, oh, it's that old thing. But that's the thing, you know, people bringing out new software for these obscure machines highlights them more mm-hmm. and makes people like us think, what the hell was that? Yeah, I want one now. Yeah, they look ace. (laughs) Now, there's um, been quite a big development in the N64 scene recently. There's a guy on YouTube, you've seen uh, Metal Jesus? Now, Metal Jesus is wicked. I've I've followed him since the very start, and he's now, suddenly, with this video, gone viral. So, you know, um, I think this is his big exposure, but he's kind of, he covers loads of games, but he does these great stuff like top 10 obscure games for the snares or weird Japanese fighters. Mm -hmm. But um, what he did was, he hasn't disclosed where he found it, but um, he found the N64 
DD, NTSC version. So this is basically, you remember the disk drive yeah. that they had in Japan and it was supposed to boost performance and you could fit a lot more on the disk. Well, this was a retail version that he's found. And, you know, Nintendo never said that they had a retail version. And he's just found it and it boots up in English mm-hmm. and he's got this blue disk on it. And he and doesn't know what's on it. The blue disc doesn't boot. He doesn't know what's on it. It's a complete mystery. It could be a commercial game for the DD. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, there was a new Zelda. They said there was a Con- Conker's Bad Fur Day. There could be anything on there. Because this did come out in Japan in a limited run, didn't it? Obviously, it was a massive flop. Yeah, yeah. That's Well, that's what he's saying, why they didn't release it. Mm. Because it was such a flop in Japan. They mm-hmm. thought, no, it just won't bother with America. And you look at, you know, he's gone into all of the... Um, because there's like numbers and stuff on it and stickers and it, it, he's kind of figured out that looking at it, it is, like you said, it was the final quality control before it went to main production, this unit. So it's, it's finished essentially, isn't it? Yeah, they actually talked to the guy who developed it. So they got, you know, proper confirmation. And I'd say it's really good because when you're putting up a YouTube video like this with something unique in the world, you need to have the backup and the credentials. And I did something, I put a video up about something and... Uh, I was completely wrong, so I had to take it down, you know. <laughs> yeah, tell between your legs. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but it's, um, you know, I think it's awesome when stuff like this surfaces. Because, I mean, you know, there was obviously the um, the Sony uh, Nintendo PlayStation thing that got found a couple of years ago. And yeah. Ben Heck has been doing a video recently where he's dismantling it and trying to get the CD-ROM drive working on it again. Oh, wow, okay, I need to check that out because Ben Heck is a... Heck of a guy. <laughs> He's great. <laughs> well, I'm th- that's the first thing I thought when I saw this Metal Jesus video. I thought, give it a Ben Heck if anyone can get it working again. He's yeah. like, oh, you know. And, and he was also saying, oh, yeah, well, we've got this now. I'd like someone to take the firmware image of it, which would mean they could create an emulator for the DD NTSC. And, yeah. Oh, that could be so cool. People share it with the world. It's cool when people, you know, there's nothing worse than people finding a rare bit of stuff like this and just keeping it to themselves. Yeah, keeping it in a cupboard. They want to show everyone and get everyone exploring and sharing in the... Uh, Rareness. Absolutely. So uh, if you want to see uh, Metal Jesus's video, we'll pop a link in our show notes. Really worth a watch, though. And he lives in the Seattle area, doesn't he? And he yeah, he's, yeah. He says a load of ra- random stuff, just turns up. I wonder if you found it at, like, you know, yard sale or something. For, like, Maybe, yeah, yeah. He was saying that his area is, you know, very full of this old stuff. But also, he does loads of Amiga stuff as well, so check him out. He's quite good. Now, I was talking about magazines before, um, the ones that I found in my mum and dad's attic over the weekend, and there was a lot of copies of Amiga format. Uh, yeah, was that one. was uh, one of the biggest consumer magazines, wasn't it? Yeah, I think at one point it was the biggest in Britain. You know, it sold all the movie mags and stuff like that wow. um, back in about yeah. 92, 93. And obviously they did a lot of like computer mags back then, like Amiga Power, all the formats, like PC format. Um, Edge, they do. Edge, Edge magazine, yeah. Games Master, I think it was like Sega Zone and Game Zone. Oh, so. Big publishers then. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about pretty much the history of British gaming magazines. Future were there, you know, right yeah. in the late 80s to the early 90s. Legendary publisher of some of my all-time favourite magazines. And there's actually a guy who listens to our show. I'm um, going to give a shout out to Warren Brown, um, who got in touch with me. And he works on T3 magazine usually, that Future Publish, um, which, you know, is one of my favorite gadget mags. I often read that and stuff. You know, yep. they're really good reads. But also, um, Future have kind of looked at their past a little bit and released a magazine called Classic Gaming Volume 1. This looks quite nice. Uh, I was looking at the content section and stuff, and they have each system is split into a category. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of have the games on that category. So you've got Spectrum, Amiga, Mega Drive, PlayStation, N64. Quite nice for a first edition. Absolutely. And I think, you know, like we said then, the fact that, you know, Future have got such a rich history. And they were covering these 
machines when they first came out. So if yeah. anyone knows about them, it's you know this company, isn't it? Definitely. And uh, you know you're looking at they, they kind of do a hardware overview, and then after that they kind of go in depth into some of the big games on each system. So you know looking at the Amiga, they do like Prince of Persia, Cannon Fodder, a couple of pages in each one. There's a bit about the Bitmap Brothers and Lemmings, and even the PlayStation, an overview of the early hardware on there, a development of Wipeout, a bit of story behind that. You know, and there's these really nice. You know, we mentioned about this pixel art style coming back in big style recently. Yeah. And you know they look really rich and vibrant. They blow all the graphics up, so they take over like two page spreads and stuff like that. Well, well, how big is it? Is it quite thick? Or? Yeah, it is. Well, <laughs> he actually sent me a copy of this, but I've got it at the studio. I've left it um, at home. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it looks really good quality. Actually, it's uh, you know if you have seen any, any retro gamers kind of yeah. you know like the, the hardware volumes and stuff they do, it's pretty similar style to that. Really, it's you know it feels like a quality book, really, not a magazine. And uh, the fact that they're calling this Volume 1, I imagine there is, you know, more of them on the way. Yeah, that looks like an exciting read. Next time, bring it in. Have a look. <laughs> well, I thought I'd hit the car. I was going through my boot before, but it's, it's quite chocolate. It's just full moment. of old magazines. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's £9.99. Uh, Classic Gaming Volume 1 by Future Publishing. Um, yeah, that should be in um, WH Smith and places like this. Absolutely, you know? yeah. So, and you can also order it online. Yeah, we'll pop the links in the show notes if you want to uh, order a copy online. Worth a look, I think. Yeah, you know. for international people. It's always nice, I think, you know, for gamers of our age as well, the fact that we we grew up reading magazines, didn't we, before the internet was big. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we didn't consume stuff on tablets. Nah, so if exactly. we had paper, that's, there's still nothing uh, better than sitting in the bath reading an Amiga magazine for me. <laughs> a bit risky reading it on an iPad in the bath, isn't <laughs> <Yeah>. it? <laughs> now, uh, there has been a new Amiga game that I've been pretty hooked on over the last week or two at the moment it's uh have you seen this game it's called blocky skies yeah i saw your review actually it was really good because i hadn't a clue about this game and you hadn't mentioned it so it really surprised me and it looks really good i thought when it came out oh this has to be a high power powered game that's going to run on the big systems mm -hmm. but it runs on low end stuff the lowest end. I mean, it the runs lowest. on half a megabyte Amiga 500. <laughs> wow. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But um, if you haven't seen this game, because obviously 2016 has been a pretty good year for Amiga homebrew games. We had uh, Tanks Furry, you know, we talked about months ago when that came out. Yeah. Um, what was the other game as well that came out in the Amiga not too long ago? Oh, the that Amiga Racing game. Oh, Amiga Racing. Amiga Racer, yeah. yeah. And uh, so this is really the third Amiga, you know, high-profile Amiga game that's come out in the last, like, six months or so. And usually you get, like, one every three years, so this is yeah. really good. Uh, but normally, the, the weird thing about this is the games are normally quite hyped up on the forums and that beforehand and stuff. In but they just release this out of nowhere. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like, I, I haven't heard about it at all. How did you hear about it? Uh, I think it was a thread on EAB. The guys behind okay. it just like, oh look, we've, we've come to this game. It's free to download if you want to play it. And uh, I was like, oh, I'll, get, I'll give it a look. You know, I like to do videos on new Amiga games because it's not yeah. that many. So it's like you know, <laughs> yeah. a couple of year yeah. for a lazy guy like me who does a video like once a month. It's quite good. Um, but the game it. In my video, I mean, I'll, I'll pop a link to my video if you want to actually watch that and see a bit of the gameplay. But it kind of reminds me a bit of, it's a very contemporary looking classic game, if you get me. You know, kind of like a lot of new indie games try and look 8-bit. Yeah, yeah. So they have that cool kind of blockiness, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they've got like parallax scrolling and there's like, you know, weird shapes in the background. And there's like three mobs that play on it. Yeah. But it's kind of like glitch step. It goes really nasty at some point. I, I must admit, I loaded it up on Amiga Forever, but because uh, I wasn't using a gamepad and hadn't set up the emulator, I just had the intro music on. And I thought I'd just leave it for a bit and was just cleaning the house. 
And it got really good. <laughs> it was like, yeah. it's mental, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> when you're playing the game, like one of the mobs in there, though, it just sounds like someone's like strangling a robotic cat at some point. It's like, <laughs> but it is awesome. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, it wouldn't look out of place on like Steam or uh, Xbox Live in the and indie it, section. And is it free? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. They've released it free. I mean, what, they've covered all bases as well. Because like I said, you can, co- you can play it on like, you know, a low end Amiga 500 without any RAM expansion mm. or top of the range, you know, Amiga 4060. But they give you, um, there's an ADF file you can download from their website. Site. So you can just write it to disc. Yeah. yeah or there's a, a hard disk one if you want to, you know, play it off like, you know, an emulator. Or there's even an ISO if you want to burn it to a CD-ROM, play it on a cd That's ace. Well, we'll link your uh, review yep. in the show notes because it's worth watching, guys. Really good. And uh, if you want to download it direct, the website is blockyskies.com. That's the one. There you go. Now, <laughs> now... We've been talking about, you know, famous musicians and that and kind of tracing their history and their love for these kind of obscure and weird retro systems and that kind of thing. Obviously, Calvin Harris, um, Kanye West we've talked about as well. You found another one. Yeah, so uh, RZA (laughs) from the Wu-Tang Clan, uh, who are massive and uh, totally not the people I expected, is recording an album of original tracks, all inspired by Atari game music. So <laughs> Kanye West is coming out with TurboGrafx-16, his new album. Now Wu-Tang are coming out with their Atari classics. This is crazy. How do you say, is it RZA? Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, okay. for, yeah, yeah, okay. that's the one. I've never been massively into hip-hop, but obviously I know that Wu-Tang are like, you know, probably one of the biggest hip-hop groups of the last 20 or 30 years, aren't they? Yeah. And what's really remarkable as well is, I mean, you think about, you know, you always get the impression that kind of video games, especially the retro gaming scene, back then it was a bit more, uh, a lot of the cool kids in school maybe weren't into it in like the 80s and 90s, but it turns out they probably were. You look at all these guys who are like, they're the epitome of coolness. Yeah. And they're releasing like, you know, hip-hop versions of Atari 2600 games. Yeah, it's it's crazy because he's he's got some games developers on there. Mm-hmm. So... He said, uh, you know, Atari have actually said, we are thrilled to partner with RZA, one of the greatest hip-hop producers of all time. <laughs> but I'm just picturing some, like, really nerdy accountant-looking guy wearing a suit saying that. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, they're actually saying this is his second time he's collaborated with Atari. So he was a voice on a title that they did for the PS2, getting up contents under pressure. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah about, about so, 10 years ago. So there's some kind of weird connection with Wu-Tang and Atari here. I think, yeah, they actually won like uh, some like MTV or Grammy Award or something for the soundtrack of that game. It was, uh, I think it was quite, you know, a hip-hop inspired game back then. So, but obviously he's got an affection for um, video games, it seems. I mean, no one's going to make a, a soundtrack of stuff dedicated to, you know, vi- video game music. Yeah. Unless they're really into it. Yeah, no, definitely not. And uh, this is a very strange direction all the rappers seem to be taking. Yeah. I'm liking it. Retro gaming seems to be getting bigger and bigger. It's crazy, isn't Definitely. it? Really I never the thought I'd hear Wu-Tang doing an Atari <laughs> album. I, I really want to hear it now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're uh, expecting an exciting delivery soon. Yeah, this is actually for my girlfriend. She ordered it, but she's going to Brazil. so It's yours. Yeah, so she's sending it to my house and it's mine. And I just looked at Let's Pray Retro. They did a great review of it. It's called The Pocket Chip. Now, The Pocket Chip is... Uh, tiny machine that runs on arm so it's kind of like a raspberry pi mm-hmm. but it's built in to a little case with a screen and um it's also got gpio ports at the top so you can access it and it's all kind of like very customizable so um if you look at let's talk retro they've done a great colin's done a great little talk on it and kind of breakdown but um there's some great stuff you can do in there there's thousands of games that people have made for it 
but you can customize all of the games so you can change the characters in it change the sprites um using lua commands you can change the games as well so it's kind of like a little portable linux handheld and it's saying, really nice and the screen is it's color screen as well on it isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. it's a color screen it's uh, got really good battery life as well and the saying on this website here, I mean, it seems to retail, they're saying it's a $9 PC that does it all. Is that kind of the... I think the internals were $9. Okay. So with the case and everything, it's probably up to 50 Okay. But still, that's not bad for... Yeah, a... about 35 quid, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. about the price of Raspberry Pi, but you get a screen and a keyboard and all that with this. That's keyboard it. looks pretty funky as well. Is it kind of... Is it actual keys or they're just kind of... I think they're like little touch buttons. Yeah. I, I don't know, Alan. Uh, maybe capacitive. I'll have to uh, see when it arrives at my house. But this looks like a proper hacker's toy. Oh, yeah, totally. You can just plug loads of stuff into it. You can just do mad customization. It's got built-in Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, so possibilities. Well, the same's <laughs> well, got music-making software bundled with it. There's even a web browser and a thing called a Pico 8, which is... Is that kind of like a, a game creation? Yeah, Pico 8 is that game creation thing where you can basically change all the commands with Lua and stuff mm-hmm. so it's a, a built-in kind of app store for games and someone's made doom run on it surprise oh yeah yeah there's a version <laughs> of doom on it as well but um i guess the price that they could kind of get it at is because it's like the raspberry pi zero yeah where it's that ridiculously cheap for the hardware and you know even people on this um article here on gamerheadlines.com are saying you know they've got emulators running on nintendo games and that yeah, kind of thing too you totally. a lot of game boy i guess couldn't you yeah yeah it's like a but a much powerful much more powerful machine yeah. i love that there's a, a shot on the back of it as well like the the battery looks like cellar taped into place and <laughs> yeah, stuff totally. it's like you know it's proper homebrew i love oh, it oh yeah that's great <laughs> so you, know, you have to do a video on that when you get it yeah totally totally do a big review of that now finally before we get to uh, this week's special guest um you got some World of Spectrum news. Apparently, they, they need someone new, do they? Yes, they need a maintainer. Uh, basically, someone who will run the site. And uh, World of Spectrum's quite a nice site, and it's been going for a long time. It's a, a good forum. And mainly, the guy Lee, he's mm. had enough. He's gone. So, if someone could come and take over, it would be great. And that's a, a request from Starquake, one of our uh, users. No, Okay. Yeah. It's World of Spectrum I've been on there before. I mean, it has been around for a long time, that side, though, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. So it would be uh, bad to see that community go down. So. Yeah, the forums, yeah. I mean, they're very active. You're looking here, there's like, you know, since I last looked, 34.9 thousand new comments. That was only on like about a month ago, I think. Yeah, <laughs> so, so like... I, I think it needs a, a guardian or some kind of, a, you know, maintainer. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, and a few decent mods and stuff as well, by the looks of it. So, uh, yeah. so if you are interested in the Spectrum scene and want to see that community preserved, which is always nice, um, yeah, we'll, we'll put all the contact information in the show notes at theretrohour.com. And thank you for checking out episode number 29, celebrating the big 3-0 next week. Oh, God, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be good. And we've got some absolutely astonishing guests coming oh, on yes. soon yeah I, I don't want to reveal more but uh, you guys are going to be blown away yeah I, I was when you uh, told me this yeah we went so. a little teaser there for a couple of future episodes yeah but this week we've got an amazing guest as well oh, now, uh, absolutely amazing as well it just keeps getting better who have we got this week uh, Janelle Jacquez now, uh, this lady charts over 30, what should I say, 37 years in the games industry. Yeah, and, you know, she's she's gone from coding 8-bit to coding full 3D levels and environments and, you know, Halo Wars and stuff. This is like some major continual learning going on. 
Interplay, id Software, ColecoVision, you know, loads yeah. that she's worked on. So enjoy this interview. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. For the next half an hour, Janelle Jaquais on the Retro Hour, and we'll catch you next Friday. Ciao. Hello, Dan. How Hello, you? Robbie. How are you today? You all right? I am doing fine. Uh, have you been out catching Pokemon today? Well, uh, no comment or yes. Yeah. <laughs> At Nintendo's HQ, is that correct? No, that was yesterday. Um, we had an errand to run out there, and we just happened to be in the parking lot outside the HQ, so I picked up a couple there. <laughs> <laughs> and there's still some left. Apparently. But you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show this week. I mean, uh, obviously, you've, you've got a great story to tell and many years in the industry, so we thought it'd be quite nice to uh, get some of your tales on the show this week. Um, sure. So it'd be great to start right at the beginning then. So what was your first experience with a computer? My first experience, probably when I was shopping for a word processor, and this would have been 1980, um, I ended up purchasing an Exidy Sorcerer oh, okay. to use as a word processor for writing my game modules. And those would be uh, Dungeons & Dragons modules, would they? In this case, it was for RuneQuest. But you had a big uh, Dungeons & Dragons RPG kind of upbringing, didn't you? Before that, yes. I was working at my college's radio station as an announcer. And my brother, who is actually the gamer in the family, called me up on the phone. He had gotten, he was a subscriber to Avalon Hills General Magazine. Mm -hmm. And because of that, a company called Metagaming had sent him a sample issue of their magazine the Space Gamer. And in that issue, which was the second issue of The Space Gamer, I still have that magazine, were two reviews written about the game Dungeons & Dragons. Now understand, this was the fall of 1975. Right. So it was the white box, and it goes all the way back. I think Greyhawk had just been released. And when I heard... The description of this game, it, it hit me that this was something that I had been looking for as a game player, as a, fantas a fan of fantasy writing, to live out adventures that I wanted to play with game rules. And I pretty much, I read through the reviews, and it was one of those moments, and I've had a few in my life, um where you realize your life is changing, mm -hmm. that it's about to go in a different direction. And that was one of them. And I sent off some artwork to the, the, um, the, the publisher of the magazine, Metagaming. They started publishing it. They gave me credit for the artwork of mine that they used. And I used that to buy my first set of Dungeons & Dragons rules. How important would you say those early tabletop RPG games were to the development of video games? Oh, they. I think the modern video game industry hangs on the, the creation of Dungeons & Dragons. Um, so many people... It, it was a slow start for people moving from role-playing games into computer games... But by the late 90s, pretty much um, role-playing gaming or computer gaming was starting to actually provide a similar but separate experience from tabletop. 
and people just started shifting over as they found, you know, their lives. They were this group of players from the 70s and the 80s. They were aging. They couldn't get together. They had kids. So suddenly they find a way to get their gaming habit on without necessarily having to interrupt their lives and go to a gaming event or getting together once a week when you couldn't get a babysitter. This was part of my own personal experience is that as children as children came into my life, it became more difficult to game. What kind of put your eye onto like electronic gaming then after tabletop gaming? What got you into that? I know you bought that machine as a word processor, but what got you into the, the gaming aspect of it? Well, the interesting thing is, is I bought that computer in 1980, and I think within two months, I was in the video game industry. And what happened was, is I had met um, another game designer, uh, Mike Stackpole, at a game convention not far from where I lived. He had come up from um, Phoenix, Arizona. I was living in Michigan. And the game convention was in Michigan, just a kind of set location. And we just, we, we met each other for the first time and got to be friends. Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks later, he called me and says, hey, I'm at this company in um, Hartford, Connecticut called Coleco. I'm working as a co- on a contract as a game designer. They need another person. Would you be interested? And I thought about it and said, I'd at least be interested in knowing more. So they ended up flying me out. At the end of the day, the company, Coleco, the head of the, the design or the development group, offered me, a, like it was like a 15-week contract to work with them to come up with ideas for games that would play with one of their, their new toys they were trying to develop. That project went nowhere. But at the end of that, um, the company offered both Mike and I full-time positions as game, devi- game designers. And Mike turned it down and I accepted it and picked everything up and moved it to Connecticut and worked there from essentially from like November, late November 1980 through June um, 1985 when they shut things down. But in the process there, it went from working on electronic toys to working on the tabletop electronics, um, what they call the tabletop arcades, um, Galaxians, Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, working on those. And it was around that time they said, hey, look, Atari and Mattel are just raking in money on these video games. Why don't we do that too? And so there was an engineering movement within the company to design a console uh, that became the ColecoVision. And around that time, I ended up being the only game developer, game designer in the company and moved from being game designer to being the manager of the game design group and having to put together an art and design team to make ColecoVision games. It must have been a very big change going from kind of small electronic games to making systems and stuff. Um, How did the company cope with it at the time? We ramped up. They had a fairly strong engineering department in-house. I worked, there were some, we had some very talented programmers. To give you an idea of how impressed I was with one of them, I named my son after him. Oh, wow. (laughs) And so, so did one of the other women in the department. So he was an impressive guy, but he was a very talented programmer. And he, um, he got... The first, he wrote the first game and he wrote the operating system for the Coleco. 
And he had been with the company about as long as I had been at that point, about a year and a half. But what we ended up doing was we ended up, at that point, the department I had been working in, the Advanced Research and Development Group, had literally been gutted in the previous year. They had lost a political war inside the company. And so we were down to just a very small handful of people. And suddenly this project came along that needed our teams. And so we grew from maybe less than, let's say, less than 10 people to a group over the course of the next three, four, three years or so to over 140, with most of the uh, game development for the, the game, the ColecoVision, being done outside of house. So I also heard that um, Coleco tried to use these uh, 4K memory cards when it first came out. Could you explain more about that? When they did the original costing of the Atari, and I think even the Coleco, the um, Intellivision, part of their cost basis was to look and see that while the Atari carts were shipping on these 2 and 4K ROM parts, well, the reason they could do that was because the way that the Atari produced graphics, it didn't store large table-driven artwork. Because the ColecoVision at that time was using the TI graphics chip, which was very similar to the type of way of handling graphics that the, let's say the Commodore 64 would later handle them, it required large amounts of table-driven pixel graphics. And that those pixels had to be stored somewhere offline. They just didn't magically come out of algorithms as the uh, Atari games did. So suddenly we went from you can get a game on 4K, but all the support, all the graphics, they're going to take a full, I was going to say 8K, but the first game, the Donkey Kong game, shipped on 24 initially and then was cost reduced down as much as they could. I think they were trying to get it on 8K eventually, but um, by reprogramming it in machine code. So we have these games that are selling on about 16K parts where the original estimates had been done with 4K parts. A lot more expensive. <laughs> particularly in the 80s when, um, the, you know, we, we, talk, we laugh about, you know, K, you know, a thousand bytes. But back then that was a big deal. Oh, RAM was expensive, wasn't it then? Oh, yeah. So is it is it true that um, n no one was ever given any kind of code for these arcade games? It would just have to be a kind of reverse engineering process. Or... This was, absolu this was yeah. absolutely true. All we ever got from the arcade manufacturers, and we did mostly arcade knockoffs. That was one of the, that was one of the frustrations of working there. Um, we all we got was the arcade unit. And from that point, the designers and the artists and the programmers, we would do analysis of the games, do timing, do um, speed estimates, etc., based on what we could observe on the monitors, which then we had to translate, usually by flipping them on their side to make a horizontal format for NTSC and, I guess, PAL from these custom monitors that were usually vertical, um, what I guess you would call a portrait. In a portrait format, we had to shift them over to working in landscape. So we had to reinterpret everything and try and still make the same game. The graphics were all done by this, okay, this looks like the character, and this looks like how it would animate. And can we cost reduce it down to fewer frames? And can we create this background by using reusing a certain tile more times? So because we, the whole idea was to try and make the, these games look exactly like the arcade, 
unless you looked real closely and then you realized we were taking shortcuts everywhere. Because it seemed like but, at, the t- at the time, like everyone like kind of had a console coming out within those couple of years. It was must have been a yeah, really competitive industry at the time. There was a lot of... Um, Coleco was actually one of the latecomer Me Too's. That was their style was that even as a toy company is that they would see something that was making money and then say, hey, we can do that but do it cheaper and maybe you'll put a different spin on it. And that was how they ended up doing. And Coleco, that's what ColecoVision came out was that, hey, we can do this arcade console fairly quickly using off-the-shelf parts. So they were able to use the TI graphics chip and um, a standard process, a fairly standard processor for the time and make a game that essentially could knock off fairly closely existing arcades. They weren't as sophisticated as the graphics on the arcades because those were all custom, but we could come pretty damn close. Because I know Coleco, they originally started like a shoe company, didn't they? They, they had a lot of different direction over their uh, existence. Yeah, they, they started selling shoe repair and parts for um, shoe repair. And there's a book that's going to be, I know, it's, I just found out, it's gone to the printers, that it's the history of Coleco. And I, I contributed to that about the, the ColecoVision era. But there's a great big arc of description of the origination of the company and how it literally began as this, this one guy in New York who brought in his two sons to help him. And the son, you know, and they got into the, you know, they survived World War II, you know, they survived the Depression, they got through World War II, and they're in the 50s, and one of the sons says, hey, plastics, we can do things with plastics, and what things with plastics was turned out to be toys, and it kind of grew and grew from that point until they got out of doing the leather goods, they got out of doing some of the very simple toys, and they found more toy lines to get into until... When I showed up around 1980, they were all over the place again in toys. So do you think that kind of um, them following stuff and introducing stuff later um, kind of helped with the failure of the Coleco Adam? No, I don't I don't think that. Actually, from my personal standpoint, the Coleco Adam was probably ahead of its time. Uh, Coleco's interest in the toy, the way they operated in the toy business was to try and find markets that were already established or to try and find licenses that were already established. That was really what defined them, was to play off existing demand and market awareness. The existing demand and market awareness for video games said, oh, hey, we can get into this. And it's being market, you know, video games at that point were being marketed through toys. Coleco understood toy marketing and how to do it. So it was a natural for them that way. When the market started shifting at the end of the crash to computer games, Coleco was clueless about that. And that's something we found out when we were trying to make, and when they got into doing some um, computer game license titles near the end of the, the video game period. That must have been a, an amazing time to be in the industry. Well, not amazing, probably a horrible time, actually. Uh, it, was, um, it was stressful. <laughs> did you see it coming or did it kind of come out of nowhere? To be honest, it came out of nowhere. I was out with a couple of our marketing guys at a, at a game show, an arcade show in Chicago 
We've been having some internal problems, uh, primarily with trying to push for getting um, bonuses, uh, cartridge sales bonuses that would be would trickle to the developers, not just. Um, well, first, Coleco had a, a program where managers participated in that a bonus, depending on how well the company did, and then the programmers basically staged a run, um, not a sit-in or a riot. But they made demands on the company that basically said, we want to participate in the sales of the arcades or the games we're making and the computer modules equipment we're making. And so the company kind of gave in to that. Well, when that happened, my design team staged our own rebellion. I couldn't be involved in it. But the designers working for me did the same thing and just basically came back and said, if you're going to do this for the programmers, you're going to do this for us. Well, what was really going on was the company was losing money and they were not really sharing that information with us in the design department. So when the first layoff hit and it was over Thanksgiving, our Thanksgiving holiday in late um, November in 1984, I was surprised to learn that my the first artist hire I had made and my most recent game design hire were both let go. Christmas vacation comes. We get through Christmas. We come back from Christmas. It is January 2nd, 1985. The whole department comes back and people come into the department kind of without us realizing it. And they grab most of the art department, a number of the programmers. It ends up being about half the company. One of my designers um, who was traveling that day, my brother was in QA, so it ended up grabbing him. The, uh, most of the artists were taken. I think one woman who was spared was out on maternity leave. They took them all across the street to a theater across the street from the company and basically said, you're all laid off. You're not allowed to go back in the business, into the building. Please make arrangements right now to come back for your exit interview. So literally one day, the entire half the company, half the uh, development team went about 70 people. Well, this bad time obviously was kind of replicated around the industry. I mean, you know, that that crash from 83, uh, you know, for those couple of years, I mean, well, in, in your opinion, what, what kind of caused that all to happen then? Because it was so big for, you know, those five years before, uh, then it just all fell down. Here's what happened. This, this is the analysis that I've seen from the time, is that there were too many games in the market. Everyone had jumped in and said, look at all these, we can make Atari games relatively cheaply and put a, a movie license, license on them from some bad movie. And it's the same point-and-shoot type game as ever all the other games. But they started just loading the marketplace up with them. The CE shows were just filled with companies um, marketing games, a lot of them based on motion picture licenses, not just DP, based on these motion picture licenses that were really not memorable games. So they overloaded it. And the discount toy realist resellers like uh, KB at the time here in the USA were starting to load up with these bins of cartridges they couldn't even really sell at five bucks each, which was in you know, 1985 terms, 84 terms, was, wasn't entirely cheap, but they couldn't even get rid of these cartridges at you know, less than a quarter of retail price. So there's too much inventory in the market, and most of it is bad. And at this point, you know, the novelty of the game industry was starting to wear off. Um, the Atari had kind of had the longest run. It had run its arc. In television was... Um, not doing quite as well and television had some interesting was 
Intellivision made games that played really well on Intellivision. I think that was their strength. Is they, I've, I've talked with some of the guys who were there since. I've actually, I actually made friends later in life with the guy who was my, my parallel, my peer over the, the, Atari, the Intellivision design group, Don Daglow. So that was kind of amusing, carrying, comparing notes for the first time about uh, 15 years ago. But it's just there. Everyone was going down, and Coleco was literally the last group to go in the video game. We were one of the last groups to tank, mm -hmm. and I think it's because we were the last in. People were, and we were making relatively decent arcade knockoffs. It must have seemed uh, quite desolate at the time because in Europe, I remember we had lots of home computer systems, but the consoles, you know, just disappeared. But mm -hmm. I, I guess in America there wasn't that base of home computer users it was quite a lot of console users so home computers were still kind of expensive nerd territory at that point um if you look at the, even the apple II, the apple II was a significant investment for a family um unless you were a hobbyist it was a significant investment i chose my first computer the exidy sorcerer because for the price that an apple II was selling at the time I could get both a computer and a printer. Well, talking of printers, uh, we also heard you had quite a few hot uh, flaming printers at some point with the... Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, and I can... This is a little bit as much rumor. I remember coming back to it. Set up the story. Um, Coleco, when we set up our new offices and did all the rework, the um, reconstruction inside of it, they built a clean, a, a, an honest-to-goodness clean room. In this, they stored the um, the Vax, the, the Vax Mini, that was the heart of our development team. So most people, most people who were doing development worked off dumb, ter dumb terminals attached to the Vax. Because it was a clean room and because it could be sealed off from the outside, for some reason they decided to run um, a durability test, a stress test, on an Atom printer over the weekend. And they just set it to print it overheated it caught on fire and it triggered the halon fire system in the clean room so all the uh, co2 is <laughs> going everywhere yes <laughs> no. so you know it was inside the clean room but um yeah there was there was an event where the, uh, one of the printers caught on fire after coleco then um what was the story with you leaving then and what did you do next well i was laid off um, I was in the last group of the game design group. Um, this was, I was looking at it, the calendar recently. So it's, it's kind of marked in my, my brain right now. It was June 7th, 1985. Mm. I was homesick that day. I had been deathly ill. This was kind of a momentous weekend. My grandfather had died that week. I was home ill. And suddenly I have to come into work on Friday, still sick, and deal with all my separation stuff. So... We're terminated. There's a little bit of severance. Um, I'd been there at that time four and a half years, I think, and my entire team was let go. There was no, there was really no place for us to go, especially not in the Hartford area. Earlier in the year, I had sent out my resume and was my CV, and was trotting that around. And I did get a job offer in California from um, Epics games and in the end decided to turn it down it wasn't right for me and i wasn't really keen with the idea of moving to california at the time so nothing else really panned out 
Um, it comes June. Eric Bromley, who was the man who hired me into Coleco in the first place, um, he had been separated from Coleco for a while at that point, at least a year. He was starting his own business venture, and he hired me and the the guy who had been my my uh, principal designer to go work for him as um, produ- basically producers. And we worked. I was there. At a company, it started out as a company called International Omni Products Inc. Mm. Or no, International Omni Corp. And while I was there, they managed to they wrangled a stock deal where we were acquired by a public company called the Penguin Group, which was really us senior people in our company taking control of the Penguin Group. It was convoluted. But in the end, I was working for a company called Penguin Products, which was a publicly held corporation. And I was there nine months, and I hated it. (laughs) So it was like the weight of the world being lifted off my shoulders. Because you did eventually work for Epic then, didn't you? Yeah, one of the one of the groups, Ogden Micro Design in Calif- Colorado, had been founded by someone who had worked with um, at one of the comp- the Chicago-based companies we worked with uh, on Coleco products. I cannot remember the name of the company for the life of me, but Bob Ogden started Ogden Micro. And he went through different companies after that. Actually, I think he ended up designing MacroMind or producing the com- the the tool called the develop- the film tool called MacroMind. But he was doing his little company in Colorado was doing titles for Epics, mm-hmm. and I wrote some I wrote some of my um some of their design documents, designed their games for them, did a, pitched a lot of proposals at them and had them swipe ideas out of some and not credit me. So it was a rocky relationship. <laughs> so later on, you uh, moved to working with ID Software. First of all, just for a clarification, it's called ID. ID, sorry. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people make that con- confusion. When I was going to go work there, um, my spouse was working as a, at, in, a, in a high school, and some of the, the people there were like insistent that it was called ID software. And no, we're pretty certain that the people who work there call it id. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose back then, the only time people ever saw it was reading it in magazines and stuff, didn't they? You exactly. Didn't, you didn't see videos I mean, or anything. Oh, it's when I'm going to say that to John Romero, aren't I? Now? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, John was gone. This is the story here. All right. I had gone through. I'd fr- After Coleco, I ended up freelancing as an artist and a game designer for about seven years. At the end of that, I ended up working for TSR, the people who made Dungeons and Dragons, as a staff artist and a manager for a while, for another three and a half. While I was working there, uh, TSR had a significant layoff, about 20% of the staff. You know, I was kind of thinking, I started thinking about, okay, what's happening next? I'm, I'm kind of bored with things I'm doing here. And I just had a chance to experience what it was like to be in a warm place during Christmas when I I took the family down to um, Disney World for Christmas that year. And this is 1996. And said, wow, it would be really interesting and nice to work someplace where it's this warm in the winter. Three weeks later, I was at a role-playing game convention dedicated to the game um, RuneQuest and 
other games that uh, the company Chaosium produced. And I ran into someone who had a history, who I already had a history with um, through Coleco. I tried to hire him to work for me at Coleco. Um, I had worked with him on projects for the RuneQuest game, but it was Sandy Peterson, who was then a designer for id software and while i was there and this was in the middle of a blizzard so that kind of reinforced things (laughs) um he pitched to me the idea of coming down to id and interviewing with them for a level designer position what sandy told me was that i was coming down to replace john romero okay this was the story i'd been told Big shoes to fill. <laughs> yeah. Well, John John had uh, been separated from the company by that point. Um, I went down. I interviewed with them for a week. I learned how to make um, levels in their Quake 2 editor. And at the end of the week, they offered me a job. And I moved um, two weeks later, literally. I moved myself down, and my family followed a few weeks later. I started working on the Quake 2 project from there. Well, obviously, if you look at that era, I mean, it were kind of, you know, from doom for example and then obviously quake came along i mean they were really the the forefront of this new like first person shooter genre really weren't they must have been a really exciting company to be involved with around then this was the heyday of id i mean it had got it had gotten their fame up through doom and a lot of other things going on but around the time i showed up was a time also that they they kind of went really big and the money started coming in with their relationship with activision before they were selling games and they were the three or four guys, you know, the small group, the small team there working there was benefiting from the money coming in. You know, we you see John, you know, the John Romero and John Carmax Ferraris and there was that lifestyle going on and it was pretty heady. I mean, this was a lot. This was working with people who at least believe themselves to be rock stars. And I kind of wasn't that. And neither was really Sandy Peterson. And. So I get in there, I'm there three months, less than that, and he leaves the company to go to work for Ensemble Studios. Well, five years later, I learned from from Sandy that he wasn't hiring me to replace John Romero. He was hiring me to replace himself. Oh, wow. Because he already knew he was leaving. But it was an interesting time. I will say it really did a lot to make my career and to give me a name again in the computer game industry. I remember when I was a kid, like uh, one of the kids at school brought in the first, um, you know, the sh- first shareware version of Doom. And the first time I saw mm-hmm. that, it, it blew my mind. I mean, do you remember the first time you saw that game? I mostly saw it, I think, let's see, I'd seen Wolfenstein earlier. I had actually didn't have a computer that would play most of the games. Mm-hmm. In fact, when they talked with me, I'd never even heard of Quake. So the first time you played Quake was uh, it Software. At it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, so, what were the most important things to considering design uh, when designing a Quake level? Because they obviously had the new multiplayer online aspect. For me, and this this is more personal, was variety of play experience. Um, I wanted to make my levels be diff- play differently from area to area of the map. And then the other part was just thinking flow thinking about what my visual cues were going to be to move me through the map, what would draw me through to making the next choice, which way to go, and making it be there and not punish me, punishing me too horribly for making incorrect decisions. So it was basically learning how to, to flow people through spaces. Kind of the same thing architects do. 
Because I remember around that era, though, I mean, you went from kind of doom and then there was like Heretic and Hexen and, um, you know, obviously Quake came along. It kind of seemed like the engines were making massive leaps in just like every six months would be some really big developments. I mean, was it, was it quite a fast-moving um, genre to be working on at the time? I came in, let me see, I came in, literally Quake had been out for just a few months. Mm-hmm. And what I came in and started working on was essentially Quake one and a half which really was the same code that Valve used to make Half-Life. So I came in as Quake 2 was being developed, and halfway through that project, John completely rewrote the code um, that year to to use um, DLLs instead of um, Quake C. So we had he com- we com- had to completely redo the game going to forward from June or June or July of that year. But yeah, there was some changes, and the bit the real exciting was. Um, Figuring out the differences between working from software-driven 3D and having to make sure the same thing worked and even looked better in um, accelerated 3D um, through 3D. You know, we we wish that everyone playing Quake could have played it with the accelerated version using um, graphics cards, but we actually had to make it work with the um, the lower the lower capabilities. So we were really restricted on what we could get in in into view on a scene and then when quake came along it or quake 3 came along and it was only 3d and it had to be fast we even had new new re- restrictions um and by the time that the doom 3 engine and then we saw what was going on in um, the unreal engine um there were a few other engines starting to come out at that time i think the first cry engine was making its appearances by the time that the doom 3 engine came out I was already halfway out the door. So uh, what, what point did you leave? Was it just after Doom 3 then? No, it was actually before. Um, Doom 3 had started. Um, we had shipped Quake 3 Team Arena. And at that point, in addition to doing level design, I'd gotten into some community development um, for about the last year. Of my time there, the last couple of years, essentially involved with um, the Quake 3 world, uh, which I've ended, ended up being a moderator at. And basically one of the people who oversaw the moderators. Um, and then trying to promote, I did a couple of level pack for Quake 3 Team Arena by working with, outside, with fans to create content to add, you know, when Quake 3 Team Arena shipped, there were only eight levels, in, eight original levels inside of it, and which was not a lot. So I worked with some fans, some talented level designers, as unofficial, but yeah, we think these these play our game well type levels. So that was I start essentially getting almost into community management at that point um, while doing level design and starting to lose. I really was not interested in the direction that Doom was going for, for at that time. I kind of had my heart broken by a project shift oh, about two years, about a year and a half before. Um, we had been working, Graham Devine had been the lead designer on Quake 3, and he was going to be the lead designer on a new project that was probably going to have more in common with Final Fantasy than it did with our the shooters that id was doing. From that, I guess, came there was the famous incident where Paul Steed was fired and the company changed over to doing Doom 3. What happened was is they decided not to do the game that Graham was doing and do, the, do Doom 3, which I was not interested in, which some other people in the company were not interested in. Um, but John and a little political group of his people 
of his friends were. And the, the killer for me was that I was going to be the lead designer, lead level designer on the new, the other project. I never really regained my interest in working on some of the Doom projects. And I saw it as just being a rehash of the same exact same game that it had been making since the day they got started. Yes, there's consistency, but there was no there was almost no innovation. It had for me just become this is a tech demo for John Carmack's latest game engine. That uh, must have been frustrating because you'd been it was w- working with the fans as well, and they cr- yep. produce such good stuff as Team Fortress and you know amazing mods. The fan community was massive on Quake. They were huge. They were they were one of these groups that kind of was like, don't you people have lives? <laughs> <laughs> but they, they produced some amazing stuff. And this, the people, particularly on Quake 2, there was a, um, a website that was just all about um, skins and character models for Quake 2. And some of the things that some of the people did for that, they, they weren't really usable because they were almost too large, but just some incredible animation that they made work with the the Quake 2 engine that when Quake 3 came along wasn't quite possible because of the changes that the engine made. Talking of Doom as well, have you played any of the uh, the new version of Doom? Nope, not at all. Probably my my dark secret is is I always sucked at playing those games. And I can watch Becky play some of the games. Mm-hmm. But then it's backseat driving, and I'm back into sitting in the warm room at id, what reviewing software on a hot Texas summer day. If you're familiar with the way car sickness works, yeah. that if you're in the front seat or if you're driving, you're usually okay. But you move in the back seat, that's where you get sick. That's what doing level reviews that summer was like, sitting in the back seat of a hot car. It's it takes, kind of now. It takes you right back there. <laughs> it takes me right back now. I've. Um, Becky was my wife was playing um, uh, do, the original Doom one day mm-hmm. on our on our Xbox 360. I tried watching her and eventually just said, "Okay, I've got to leave. <laughs> I'm going to throw up." Yeah, yeah, no, I've got motion sickness from watching people play the original Doom as well. It's... But the other side of that is I was never really a good player. Later on, after ID, you moved to Ensemble Studios and did. Yes. Um, Age of Empires and yes. Halo Wars for the 360. What was it like when Microsoft decided to shut it down? Oh God, um, I still have. I'm still unhappy about that. It blindsided. To be quite honest, for those of us working in the trenches, it completely blindsided us. Having heard stories since, um, which I probably will not go into detail, but um, I blame Microsoft a lot less for what happened. But apparently. Um, relationships between our management team and Microsoft had seriously deteriorated that summer, um, particularly with the uh, arrival of the new um, GM um, over the whole uh, game division, Don Matrick. They were ready to shut, apparently they were ready to shut us down that summer, but because Halo Wars showed so well at E3 that summer, the demand for it kept us alive until we finished it. Um, We were not brought into the secret till, I think it was September 8th, um, 2008. And it was a stunner. In fact, it caught me completely off guard in the sense that I had missed the memo of the company meeting that morning. So I'm sitting in my office um, getting ready to work on Halo Wars in 
and my office mate isn't there and no one and he's very prompt and no one else was around so i finally pulled up my email that morning and there was the when you come in come straight to the conference you know to the 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 big meeting room the theater and when i got stepped into the back of that it was dark it was quiet and up at the front was this whole string of GMs, general managers, who had come down from Microsoft. And they all had these really long, sad dog faces. I was thinking, oh, my God, this is not good. (laughs) What's going on here kind of thing. Oh, I think I knew at that point. And so I started listening in. And, yep, this was to let us know that the studio was going to be closed down when we completed Halo Wars and that, arrangements would start being made for our separation, et cetera, et cetera. And we'd be able to interview with the company. We kind of took the rest of the day to figure out, well, what are we going to do? Three people quit immediately. Two, three very talented programmers just quit immediately. Well, it must have been hard for you, like finishing the, you know, the, the project when you knew that it was um, coming to an end soon then. Was it, it, was diffi- it was both difficult and it, there was a lot of... Um, we, we, we had a decision to make. One of the designers basically said, we can approach this two ways. We can just throw this together and finish it. Or we can make this the best damn project that Microsoft has ever seen and embarrass them for firing us. Mm-hmm. We chose the latter. It's good motivation. <laughs> it was good motivation. When we finally shipped the product, we were immensely happy with it. We finished it um, early in January. It took a little longer than we expected. We finished it in January to get the bugs out. And by the end of that January, um, we were, I guess, in your, on your side of the, of the sea, we, you call it being made redundant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but the whole shoot, the studio was shut down, and um, we were all told to go home. And um, we, were still, we would still be employees of the company for another two months due to U.S. labor law. Um, thank you very much for your services. Here's your severance package. And that was it. That was pretty much it. What are you up to these days, then? These days? I am most. I did. I helped um, started a small company up here in Seattle with Rebecca Heineman and two other women called Old School. We're still trying to keep that a going concern. We've had a rough year with that this year. Um, I'm mostly gone back to doing freelance art illustration. Um, back, back to my roots in the D and D market. Who'd have thought that thirty years later or more? I guess isn't it? Yeah. I am surprised. I have yeah. things in print, still in print. In fact, there's a reprint. There's reprints that have been made this year of things that I made 35 years ago, 36 years ago, 37 years ago for my first employer after college, Judges Guild, uh, with Dungeons and Dragons Adventures. They're they're reissuing um, literally coffee table book versions of them. I'm I'm flabbergasted. And then this is the 40th anniversary of the Dungeons and Dragons fan magazine that I started in college. Wow. <laughs> I, 40 years. I mean... It's, it's crazy as well, because in our city, Notting- know. Nottingham, we have lots of uh, tabletop gaming shops that are now open, mm-hmm. and there are lots of cafes. We've actually got two in the city now, and they're completely full of people, and quite a lot of it's, them are paying D&D. <laughs> it's quite cool. It's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I go back... I get to go to a convention in Texas every year as a guest, and it is, it's completely devoted to retro gaming, gaming from the, the 70s and 80s. It was started out mostly Dungeons and & Dragons, and it has diversified from there. But it's still, these are the, the people who come, they started out as collectors. They're the people who collect the old video game, or computer, or role-playing game, sorry, tabletop role-playing game stuff. This was how they got together, and then they started playing together. And 
they thought, hey, let's get together the the people who wrote the games back in the 70s and the 80s and bring them in as guests and so people can hang out to them with them. So that's how I come into this. And then the guys who most of the guys who attend, there are older there are women, they're all guys in their 40s and maybe 50s mm-hmm. who were the kids back in the 70s and 80s who couldn't go to game conventions and meet people. And now they were reliving, they're literally reliving their childhood at these game events, meeting the people, playing games with the people who made their games back in the, back when they were children. Meeting the heroes, essentially, isn't it? It's, exactly. Uh, yeah. And it's a ratio of usually 10 guests, attendees to each special guest. It's um, like class reunion for me because most of these people I work with at some point. Well, Janelle, it's been fascinating having you on the show this week. Um, you've had some amazing oh, well, stories, and uh, we really appreciate you sharing them with us. You're quite welcome. And if uh, people want to find out a bit more about what you're up to these days, have you got a website or anywhere they can go to? Um, the best place to find me is I've got a couple of – is to hunt me up, hunt me down on Facebook. Because my, my website's kind of kind of shut down right now, just laziness. Um, but my Facebook – my studio's called Dragon Girl Studios, and it's got a Facebook page. And I'm also I also have an author page, author artist page that I update regularly. Those are both public pages. We'll pop those in our show notes as well if people want to uh, head along and find out what you're up to. Alrighty. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on this week. Thanks. Thank you guys.